Consequence Podcast Network. My friendship to all of you precludes my involvement with any one of you. But if you want to make love, then I do too. And I'll be right there behind you. Constant listeners, and welcome yet again to the Losers Club, a Stephen King podcast from Consequence of Sound. My name is Rockin' Randall Colburn, and who's sits who's sitting right there? This is a uh, Michael Ruth Rothman. That uh, I don't know about that. You don't think so? I don't know. I'm, I'll let it slide. You're probably wondering more so why we're in your ears right now, and that's because we have a little bonus episode for you. But bonus episode. We loved episode seven of Castle Rock so much that we talk to the showrunners the we creators did. sam shaw dustin thomason very very cool they were so kind to take time to speak with us and we talked all about the episode as well as just the series in general and their love for king so we got two separate interviews we talked to him separately mike helms the first one with mr dustin thomason and then because i'm an elusive creature of the night i slip in for the second one with sam shaw so stick around for those and uh we'll check in back with you after it's all done Hey, Dusty. Hey, Michael. How are you? I'm good. How are you doing? I'm great. Thank you. Thank you so much for doing this interview. I can't stress it enough how much of a fan we are of this series. Um, really blown away by it, to be honest with you. Um, you know, we. Thank you so much. You know, it's just, just spectacular what you've been able to do with the Stephen King property. And one of the things that's so obvious about it is the love that's in this. And I wanted to know, and I asked this to every one of our guests, but... What are some of your earliest experiences with Stephen King? <laughs> Great question. Um, you know, it's funny, Sam and I have obviously talked a lot about the kind of the, the origins of our love of Stephen King separately yeah. and, and, and kind of where it began. I know, I know for Sam, he, he sometimes tells the story about, um, about uh, sort of sneaking a copy of Pet Cemetery when he was actually away at camp in Maine. Um, and like hiding under the covers and reading Pet Cemetery, um, uh, a book that is definitely not appropriate to a uh, to a like twelve year old since yeah. it's like, basically like the in a way it's sort of like the darkest Stephen King book maybe maybe The Shining accepted like it it it, it a book that is essentially about gr- about grief and loss of a parent for a parent of a child. Oh um, yeah, oh, but yeah. Uh, yeah. So um uh you know and and. I think for me, it was around the same time. I mean, I actually started with it, which was really, um, you know, I think for me, a transformative experience, mostly because I was a kid who, um, I think, I feel like the, the sort of classic story of writers is that they are the kids who, you know, can't get enough of books from the earliest days of their youth and, and are sort of have to be pulled out of books all the time. And, mm-hmm. and I was um, actually pretty different from that in a way, like more interested in sports and, and, you know, the, the sort of longest uh, form uh, pieces of writing that I tended to read were the features in sports illustrated at yeah. that point. And, um, 
And I think that, that somehow sort of it and reading it really um, captured my imagination and, and, and really pulled me with a kind of gravity into reading that, you know, inescapably long book. And mm -hmm. I think that in a way that really opened the door for me for reading books in, in general, more on the whole, even than Stephen King. Like it was sort of in a way, Stephen King was my gateway drug to, to all books. Oh, interesting. Um, and, and so I think that, and I, and I think that there's a, a, a sort of, um, uh, I wonder, you know, if, if Harry Potter is sort of the the um, the gateway drug for a lot of young readers of, you know, at least half a generation ago. I feel like Stephen King was sort of a gateway drug for a lot of um, young readers of of my generation, and 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 part of it was just his ability to capture children so mm -hmm. well, and his ability to sort of understand the teenage mindset so well, and yet to be positioning it within a, a sort of insane page turner terrifying genre story that felt like it was you know it was something that you couldn't put down and so i think that that and i think in a way that's a sort of a metonymy for who king is as a writer which is like he's obviously one of our great character writers and oh, that's totally. what brings us i think all all to him and in a, in a different um you know in a different uh uh, world of the multiverse, he could have be, been, I think, a, a literary, you know, a, a sort of purely literary writer, but instead decided to focus on horror and on genre. And I think that for so many people like me, that was sort of an inspiration, like to see that you could actually do genre and do um, and do real thrillers and page turners, but still deliver on the the promise of deep human understanding and character development. And I think that's sort of a, a magic that he, he didn't invent, but he, he, he sort of perfected. Which is amazing because I mean, that's it essentially, I mean, you're a New York bestseller. <laughs> I mean, it, you are a writer now. I mean, that's like, so it, in a way, I guess it, it almost does go back to King if, if I'm making that uh, right assumption. I mean, it's, it's, oh, I guess definitely. that's crazy. Yeah. That's crazy. Yeah. And it, and I think, you know, it's funny. I mean, when um, I, I started, as you say, I started as a novelist and, and, you know, when I was writing, I, I wrote um, the first book that I wrote, I wrote it with uh, my friend Ian Caldwell. And we spent a lot of time talking while we were working on that book about, um, about Shawshank, about the body, mm -hmm. uh, you know, some of the cornerstones of Castle Rock now too. Um, there's even, I think, some lines in, in The Rule of Four that are a hair too close for comfort uh, when it comes to <laughs> discussing questions of hope and, and how they relate to the final lines of yeah. the Shawshank, of Rita Hayward and Shawshank Redemption. Like, you know, and that was uh, our 24-year-old 20, selves emulating the master. And and I think that, that there's no question for me that um, he has been the most influential writer of of my life in terms of um, in terms of both inspiring and and um, and certainly in terms of the number of books that I've read, um, but and and that extended all the way even to my second book, which um, this sort of medical thriller uh -huh. twelve twenty one, which was really kind of written in the shadow of the, the of the stand and and yeah. and having my my love for the stand and inspiring my own sort of attempt and swing at a an a kind of um disease thriller. So yeah, I mean I think at every turn in a way, King has been 
um, uh, King has been there for me. Well, someone so imaginative as yourself and you're a writer, I I have to think that the idea for Castle Rock must have gone back way, way you know, years ago at this point, right? Or was it just something that, like, how did the, how far back does this concept go, Dill? <laughs> um, it's a great question. So uh, it's funny, Sam um, actually, uh, I think it was maybe, I guess it was right, right around the time when we were really first talking about it in in earnest and and starting to, to sort of prepare to go talk to JJ, um, that Sam dug out an email that he had sent me 10 years ago that was essentially um, the, the, the pitch was, what if you did, you know, Castle Rock, a small town, you know, sort of in obviously in, in the shadow of Twin Peaks. But but what you know, what if you did Castle Rock, a town that has been beaten up by by time and mm-hmm. all of these terrible things um, from, a, a you know, from the serial killer to the to the dog to the to the devil himself and and sort of like look at who are the people that are sort of still there in that town mm-hmm. and that and that was all in this email that Sam had actually sent 10 years ago but we were sort of saying it more we were we were talking about it back and forth more broadly because of course we had no I no we had no dream at that point that Stephen King would ever allow us to do Castle Rock yeah um, and so it was sort of more of a like Here's a here's a concept <laughs> to talk about, um, and and would there be a way to do it, you know, without Castle Rock, essentially, and 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 so you know, and again, it was never taken very far, but but I think because Sam and I had really Castle Rock and the King books had always been a part of our conversations too. I mean, um, even even when we were working on Manhattan, the show that Sam created um, about the building of the atomic bomb at Los Alamos. Like the idea of a you know a small town full of scientists creating a weapon that would end the world and um, and the I mean that that's a that's a science fiction story and you know we never stopped talking about King and um, you know all of the other and and all the other sort of genre greats as even as we were working on this historical piece mm-hmm. um, because it seemed like a story that you know that that wells or lovecraft or king would invent and so um you know i think that it was it was always a part of the conversation for us and and um and both the films and the books and and became a big part of the vocabulary of all of the projects that sam and i have have worked on um and then this time sort of after manhattan was uh, finished it it sort of became a, 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 a like well what if we took the wild swing and tried to do this thing that we've been talking about forever and and maybe now that we have a little more experience we could actually convince some people to let us do it um, and you know that was sort of ten years ago it was it, we of course didn't have anything fleshed out we didn't have the idea for the story of season one we didn't have the sort of concept of the small American, you know, a, a, an American small town that not only had been beaten down by genre elements, but also by economic downturns and sort of all the things that became the the central ideas of season one. But we did have this kind of, you know, feeling that it would be really interesting to look at who stays in a town like that yeah. and who um, and who returns to one. Um, uh, and so that's really been bouncing around for about, yeah, about 10 years. Wow, that's crazy. That is, that's awesome. I mean, I imagine, I mean, you grew up in Northern Virginia? I did, yeah. 
Yeah, my some of my family is actually from uh, Fredericksburg, and I so I had gone to yeah. those small towns like nonstop as a kid, and it's interesting because like reading his stories growing up, I <laughs> I've never really actually been to Maine yet, so I would just imagine a lot of the small towns that we would drive through through Virginia, and you know, I wondered did that upbringing help influence your creation of the show, and also maybe even your love for Stephen King in general. Yeah, it's an interesting question. I mean, I so I grew up in the in the suburbs of um of DC and so really the, sort of my childhood was was much more suburban than okay. small town. Um, you know, but I think that in a way, and I think this is true for you know, Sam grew up in New York City, I think I think that that um the at the time when Steve was writing about these small towns and and I think becoming this kind of chronicler of small town American life with these exciting genre stories at the heart of it. Um, I think there were a lot of us living in cities and suburbs who sort of um, uh, romanticized the idea yeah. of the small town, life, you know, and 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 thought, oh, that would be so cool if you knew everyone in town. Now, now I'm not quite so sure about that um, as an adult, but, but I, I, I sort of understand where it came from, which is like this idea that, you know, that everyone rallies around, a, a, you know, a, a high school football team or, a, um, or an event that happens in their town and the yeah. kind of unity that comes from that. I mean, I think, look, Friday Night Lights, Oh, totally. I feel like epitomizes the idea of the romantic ideal of the of the small town mm-hmm. in modern day America. Yeah. And I think that like there was a there there was a reason that we were all kind of drawn to that Friday Night Lights version of that of that town. It, mm-hmm. it almost feels Kingian in its way. You oh, know? totally. I mean, with the small stories that you get or the short stories that you get from all the different characters and how that can carry and propel the show to go far, just go far outside the confines of like the football field. I mean, it's just, it's, it's unreal how, how many stories they're able to tell on that series. And I actually, yeah, Yeah. I do see a lot of that DNA in this show for sure. Like I, I, you know, obviously because it's the ensemble show, it's a small town. Um, I mean, there's far more spookier elements than uh, Friday Night Lights, but I do see like the, the sort of similarities and the parallels in that, in that respect of just, it just feels infinite. Like you could just keep going and going with so many different, I mean, it's just every different character is so pronounced in a way that I'm like, wow, this really could just keep going. Um, yeah. And I think, too, you know, in a, in a, in a way, as you know, from being a King reader, like, I mean, the, the crazy thing about about Stephen King's library is it's it's such a, an enormous tent in a mm-hmm. way. You know, it's like you, you look at the range of stories, um, you know, the obviously the small town stories, then the non small town stories yeah. when you look at the call at the Colorado stories or you, you know, sort of as he started to, as he's branched out, like, I think that one thing that we love about the idea of, of Castle Rock and, and, and what it, what it could be, um, if we're, if we're fortunate enough to get to keep going is that, you know, you have this range of stories, not only geographically, but also everything from, you know, the kind of simple machine, simple, beautiful friendship machine, mm-hmm. uh, machines of the body and Shawshank. Yeah. Um, and these sort of naturalistic King stories all the way to, you know, the Dominockers and yeah. Insomnia and the, <laughs> and the crazy and, and the tower, you know? Yeah. And so it's like, you have this enormous, enormous range that, that he is able to navigate 
ama- so amazingly well that you can both at an episodic level and honestly at a season level, you can really imagine some very, very different kinds of Castle Rock seasons. Oh, you totally, know, where totally. where it's just so, it's even even at a feel level, it, it 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 sort of feels fundamentally different from what you saw because that's what King does. He's sort of always surprising us with with the next place that his pen lands. You know? And it's and it's and that's got to be totally overwhelming also coming into this as a writer, uh, you know, and you're trying to think, well, we have a narrative still to tell. <laughs> There's so much material out here. I mean, being a writer, did you approach this season specifically almost kind of like a book? Like like or maybe even like another one of King's novels per se, or did you kind of just see it more as sprawling and and what was your mentality going into it? You know, yeah, I mean, definitely in 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 its way. I mean, I think we we like to think of each season of Castle Rock as sort of an untold King novel, Sweet. and and I think one of the things that we love, and that part of the reason that we wanted to do the anthology version of this was so that we could tell a you know a a, a story that had a beginning, middle, and end over ten hours, mm-hmm. but at the same time be able to use the use the the expanded you know, canvas of 10 hours versus a two hour movie to, um, to go into the aspects of King that we love that obviously sometimes fall away when you're trying to digest something down to, you know, to two hours, which is, you know, the character elements, the, you know, it's like you look at, um, uh, I mean, and, and obviously they managed to do it in some great, there's some amazing examples of feature adaptations of King that have managed to, to, encapsulate the the spirit of the novel and the characters in in that shorter period but it's like we we loved the idea and i think in in a way um uh that was part of the original kernel was that we were gonna you know that that this feel like a novel that we try to make it feel as much like a novel as as we could and 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 even you know you get the feeling with king that he sort of knows the name of every gas station attendant in, yeah. in his, um, totally. in, in all of his books and, and that they have their own little story. And I think the idea for us that we could, um, sort of, as you say, like go into the life and world, you know, there's, so there's amazing like digressions sometimes in the books where you'll get like seven pages of like some random character's story. And then you just see them like intersect with the, you know, the main character <laughs> yeah. for like one second yep. at the very end of it. And you're like, I, I and, and it's just like a, a, a tour de force of kind of Dickensian character description yeah. that, that was as fun as the central story. And so that, I think that was sort of something that we wanted a spirit. We also wanted to be able to embrace in this, uh, in this, Series. Oh, and it's something that you'd absolutely invoke. Uh, going into this, how many books did you have to read or reread, uh, pr- you know, prior to sitting down and saying, "All right, let's. I got this. We can. We can knock this down." <laughs> uh, well, we did a little. You know, uh, Sam. Between between Sam and me, we've you know we've we've sort of tackled uh, virtually all, if not all. You know, I think that that and we had before read a, a huge number of them mm-hmm. already. But it was really fun, actually, to kind of revisit and then to um, do a bit of a um, a study group with the writers at the beginning of season one. Yeah. Um, you know, we had sort of a, a, a real mix of writers this year of um, of people who were devotees of King, of people who had a kind of passing familiarity, and some, a couple even who really 
didn't know King very well at all. And I think that was our our um, our goal in a way mm-hmm. in assembling the writers room because we didn't want it to become so inside baseball that you you know that a, a sort of regular non Kingophile viewer would be totally lost. And yeah. I think that it was good good for us to have that sanity check sometimes with the writers, um, with a couple of the writers. And so it was, you know, we, but we all at the beginning sort of, um, divided and conquered once again. And Sam and I had obviously, while we were writing the the first script and, and developing the, the show in, um, you know, sort of in, in its full form, we're rereading and going back to not only some of the classics, but some of the short stories and, and, um, you know, it's an enormous, enormous library. As oh, you know. got it. it. Would, yeah, <laughs> it would it would take you know two years of full time work just to reread everything. Mm-hmm. Um, but but you know, I think that it was really interesting to to go back and and to have these sort of book group discussions about each of the books because it also started to illuminate some things about sort of what makes something Kingian mm-hmm. and and what are the aspects that we wanted to be able to bring to the series that um, that not only were sort of you know, name checking or, or, you know, um, uh, location, um, you know, winks, <laughs> yeah, but, but yeah. we're deeper than that. And, and we're really sort of asking what are, what is the, what is the essential nature of a, of a Stephen King story? And is there an essential nature of mm-hmm. a, a Stephen King story? How much, uh, do the films factor in? Cause I mean, one of the things that's so interesting going into this is that i mean you like there are obviously the nods like you see like bob gunton on the on the wall from shawshank yeah. and and there seems to be some sort of i mean you have thomas newman doing the compositions as well and yeah uh, how how much of that was just happenstance or how much of that was actually like all right look where maybe these could be also seen as like sequels to the movies in a way yeah i mean look i i think that there are some aspects of the films that have Steeped so um, much into the conversation and popular culture mm-hmm. that it was hard to ignore them. You know, it was like you 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 could be a sort of um, loyalist to what the original constructs of the books were, um, and that would be a totally reasonable approach, I think. But you know, the fact that um, that Jack Torrance uses a sledgehammer in the book and you know an axe in the in the movie yeah like it it, you know i i think that that we felt like when it came to some of the most iconic films that we loved and honestly like wanted to be you know a part of that universe as well that we were excited to be able to embrace the aspects of those films that felt right, that felt organic. You know, I mean, for example, Bob Gunton being the, you know, on that wall in the, in a prison that is clearly not the Ohio prison where they shot Shawshank, which by the way, like we considered using that prison, but ultimately decided against it for um, some reasons having to do mostly with the idea of sort of feeling like the prison was more integrated into the town. Yeah. Like there are shots you can even see in the early going of the prison where there are houses literally across yeah, the street. Which is so prison. surreal. And so surreal. Yeah, <laughs> and that was something, I mean, ha- having having grown up 
in Northern Virginia near Lorton Prison, um, like and ha- and having friends who actually lived like in the shadow of that prison, mm-hmm. like and the idea that it was sort of so central to the first season that Shawshank and the town were were deeply connected, um, and so it it for that reason we chose not to use the original prison, but we also chose to kind of honor the spirit of uh of Darabont and 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 Bob Gutton in in the form of uh of showing his picture you know so it, yeah. it, i think that that every decision was made very um consciously and carefully but i think that we didn't want to be such tight constructionists that we were you know beholden to one particular aspect of the canon no, that makes sense. And I, and I, and I wondered, you know, cause Warner brothers is linked to this. So you do have a lot of rights to use a ton of King properties, whether it's films or the rights to the books that the studios have themselves. And I did wonder, are there any properties that you just can't touch? <laughs> You're just like, no, we don't have the rights to this. We can't do this. Like we have to step away from this. Yeah. It's interesting. You know, I mean, I think part of, um, part of what it is to Stephen King is that um, people tend to want to please you, mm-hmm. I think, um, from all corners. And and so we haven't yet like come to a and it may just be a, a fact that we we have, you know, sort of we know the kind of story that we want to wanted to tell for season one. And it was Castle Rock focused. Um, we haven't yet like run up against the like, oh, we can't use that thing that we really want to use. I mean, there's a thing that Sam sometimes says, which I like, which is like when it comes to even leaving aside the rights questions, but from a genre perspective, like (laughs) once you go to the tower, you can't come back. Yeah. Yeah. And, and so like, and I think that, that there's something to that, which is like, you know, the tower is obviously like, not only, not only, you know, the, the, um, ostensible, center of the king universe yeah but but it also is a such a different kind of genre stephen king than the books that we have sort of chosen to focus on in the early going and and even on the most supernatural of the castle rock stories yeah it's just it's just fundamentally different i mean it's you know it's fantasy it's western it's it's all these things that are pretty outside the 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 most of the rest of his books and so you know, obviously, like I, I, I'm, I'm not sure we could go to the Dark Tower if we wanted to, <laughs> um, yeah. from a rights perspective. But even if we could, I think we'd be very hesitant to because it's just so different than some of the classic Stephen King vibe yeah. that I think we've been mostly accessing in the early going of this this series. Well, it's interesting because you know it's uh, when you go into like a lot of King's works, and there there seems to be like we always call them like the twinners, like you have like these sort of echoes that might not just be the specific thing that we're referencing, but they still have like sort of, you could almost kind of make that leap, that, that, that connection to it. Like, well, spiritually it seems in line with that. And one of the things I noticed is, uh, cause I've seen the first eight episodes at this point. Um, so I have yeah. a few of, I've, and this isn't going to run until after, um, the seventh episode, which, uh, so, okay. so like, um, you know, and I, so in filter for this week, you know, the Henry learns about the sound of the universe um, and the the schisma. The so, yeah. And, and I and I do, I do feel like a lot of the fans are probably going to start going like, "Oh my god, Dark Tower!" Like Dark Tower. Like, is this Dark Tower? Like, is this going to be like the thinny? Is this going to be something like? So I wondered if that was did when, when that came up in the discussion for the writers' room. 
was there any sort of yeah. way of just saying like, well, this could be kind of our way to like hint at the idea of the tower, but maybe without saying it, you know? Um, yeah, I mean, look, I think that it wasn't so much like, oh, can we can we hint at the tower? Um, it, it was more, I think, and and you know, you some some um, some more answers are coming. Um, yeah, in the oh yeah. Episodes <laughs> after the one you watched, but but of course, but but um, you know, I think that in a way, uh, obviously, like like at some level, the notion of of you know the multiverse, the 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 notion of um, you know there are other worlds than these. Like there, there are. It, it is so kind of essential mm-hmm. to. I feel like some of the notions of King that, and yes, I mean, I suppose that those come at some level from the Dark Tower, but it's not, but not limited to the Dark Tower. And so I think for us, it was sort of like. Um, you know, I think one thing that we we a, a sort of rule of thumb we always took throughout the the series um, was that obviously at the heart of this is like what's wrong with Castle Rock? Yeah. Like there, there's sort of that that question is kind of framed, and and you know the question of will that be answered in season one? Will it will it ever be answered? Does King have an answer? You know, those are all sort of essential questions. And I yeah. think part of what we were really interested in was the idea of people's different perspectives on that, you know, sort of taking an almost spiritual approach to it, which is to sort of say like, well, obviously there's something wrong with this place um, or, or it's just on the wrong end of the stick over and over and over again. And so it's like, what, what theories, what, um, what ideologies develop in the, in the shadow of that kind of tragedy? Yeah. And that was something that I think, and so we started talking about a lot of different, you know, constructs around that. We we obviously have the construct of Lacey believing that he has put, you know, put what's wrong with Castle Rock into a cage, um, and 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 that's his theory, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, and you have Pangborn who, in some way, went along with that theory um at at one point (laughs) and and pangborn who's seen so much and so when you get to filter and you have this you know you sort of start to peel back some of the layers of like well what did what did matthew deaver believe and and obviously as you know having seen the queen you you get a much better sense of that in the following episode but what did matthew deaver believe was out in that woods and was wrong with this place what do Odin and Willie believe, you know? Which is very Kingian. All of that. How do they define it? Yeah. Sorry, say that again? Well, it was just all very Kingian. Because, I mean, they never, he never sets out to define anything, you know? Like, I mean, for the most part, I I, I would, I would would say, you know, which I, that's what I love about the show is that it is very, like, at least right now where I'm at in the show is it's, it is very open to interpretation, which is so, I mean, you look at the stand and a lot of that is very open to interpretation too. Like it, a lot of that's open to interpretation for some of the stuff. I mean, and I, I think that's, I think that's totally essential um, for that. Um, sorry. I didn't mean to uh, interrupt there. No, 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 um, absolutely. No, that's, that's exactly right. And that was, but that, so that was something, you know, I think part of it was like, you know, obviously there's sort of a, um, uh, I think that that 
if you look at a lot of you know genre TV or stories or or fantasy or any of sort of you know even within books, like there's sort of this um, essential quest for rules, yeah. right, and for sort of defined aspects, and that's actually not particularly Kingian, as you're saying. Yeah. Like, King is not particularly concerned with rules, and that doesn't mean that we, as the writers of Castle Rock, want to, you know, just um, say anything is possible and have have no structure or, or rationale to what we're doing, but it is, it is fundamentally, I think, King is more interested in um, mood and surprise than in rules. Yeah, I agree. Absolutely agree. Um, when it, when it comes down to casting and and for character design, I mean, was Pangborn always from the beginning for like that, a character that you wanted to kind of center around, or did he come after the fact, or was it just a character that you felt like, all right, we have to have him? I mean, we're going to be in Castle Rock. Yeah, it came really early. I mean, it's funny because we always we we never considered the version of Pangborn that was like you know h- hero. 40, 40 year old Pangborn, mm-hmm. you know, for our, our sort of main character. Obviously, we we touch on him in the series and 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 see moments with him. But but the idea of I think Pangborn as the Lion in Winter was something that felt always just from the very earliest days felt right to us as a kind of um, as a kind of parallel to a town that was kind of in its golden, its own golden years, you mm-hmm. know, or, or, or maybe not golden years. Like the idea of this sheriff who has seen so much um, and who has witnessed some of these events in, in Castle Rock um, and who now is sort of in his, um, in his final act uh, in the way that the town kind of feels like it's in its final act. Yeah. Um, just felt to us right from from very early on and and you know i think too that we we were really um it was important to us to not kind of um overpopulate the the first season with kingian iconic kingian characters but rather to build characters who felt kingian and then i think for us the idea of having kind of one cornerstone king hero felt really good in terms of the kind of story we're going to tell and this idea of a guy who um who has his own life and his own backstory um and and is an integral part of this town but it's not really his story in this first season yeah and 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 how early did you have scott glenn in mind or or did you have scott glenn in mind at all i mean yeah, I mean Sam and I are are both giant leftovers fans and yeah. um and and uh and Sam's wife Leela Bayak uh who worked on Castle Rock uh uh and tremendous writer had also worked on Leftovers and oh, okay. so I think that in in a way we 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 had been talking about Scott Glenn from the beginning because we wanted this kind of force and we also wanted somebody who we could watch soften uh, in his relationship with Ruth and we, and, and, and obviously like when you get to the queen and, and even before that you sort of start to see like this, you know, this, 
um, cranky, cranky old sheriff has a really soft, real soft side to him, and 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 that um, and that that love is real, and in a way like that, that love story is kind of the the, the big love story of our season. You know, this, oh, this, totally. this sort of final act love story between these two people who have seen so much and and experienced so much together over the decades, and and so I don't, I don't know. There was just something um, that we felt was pretty beautiful about the idea of Scott and Sissy. Again, they had actually been in a movie together many decades ago. Um, uh, and, and it, it, they just felt right together Yeah, to us. Yeah. And I, and I love the idea of having like a, a much older couple on screen that just isn't, it's just so unorthodox these days, which is sad, which is very sad. Like I, I and there's something so adult and so mature about their relationship that just is so it's just eons ahead of what you traditionally see on on television and it and it kind of harkens back a little bit almost to like with uh for me at least uh like twin peaks the return last year where like it felt like the average age mm-hmm. on the screen was like 61 or something uh, which is great <laughs> yeah, i loved it like cool. I, you're seeing like some of the, mo- the most amazing veteran performers coming up on screen and just giving it their 100 percent and I love Scott Glenn in this. I, I, we've, we around the office, we just keep like, uh, doing his person like impersonations of him. Just, I'll just be like, I'm going out to fucking lunch and there's something like that. Or like, I'll just like, we just love his delivery <laughs> in this so show. Great. It's so By good. Way, that, that, is, that, that is also, if you've ever interviewed Scott Glenn, exactly who Scott Glenn is, which is he's, <laughs> he's just hilarious and, and wonderfully warm, but, but also just, you know, he's a tough guy. He's yeah. a real tough guy. Oh yeah. And he so. comes off that way for sure. I, I, yeah. You know, you mentioned the queen and I want, I really wanted to ask a few questions about this because honestly, this sure. is, this is, this, this feels like a total moment and one that the entire season really does build up from. And I, and I'm, you know, I'm very similar to, um, Kind of remind me of Mad Men, where you know the the real kind of pivotal episodes sometimes happen, like maybe a few episodes before the finale, and it just uh-huh. I feel like this is the 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 real hour that is just going to stick in everyone's craw for the rest of the the time, and not stick in the craw, but like stick in your memory banks. And I wondered, this script must have been really fucking hard to write, right? <laughs> like, <laughs> I mean, I mean, I I just because I've been rewatching the episodes too, going back, and I'm just. And it really is like the M. Night Shyamalan thing where you're just like, oh, my God, this really was there from the beginning, like all the way from the beginning. I mean, did you have like a a chalkboard, like the wire, like just set up with all these different <laughs> things? I mean, what was the process writing this script? Yeah. Well, I mean, look, I think the, the first part of that process is that Sam just delivered a fucking beautiful, emotional, devastating script that also kind of feels like a thriller in its way too. You know, it's yeah. so it like, it, it sort of has it all. And, and Sam is, is, uh, deserves, uh, virtually all of the credit for that. You know, I think w- we, we did from the very beginning, this was not an episode that just emerged sort yeah. of from, from at later. This was, this was an episode <laughs> that we always knew that we were going to do. Um, you know, I think, uh, even before we had Sissy, the idea of a horror story that um, is a, a sort of horror story of dementia yeah. was something that, and the sort of depredations of that disease um, was something that we were really excited about. And the idea of um, having an actor, uh, never mind Sissy Spacek, be able to sort of move in and out of their own life and in and out of time um, and and sort of feel unmoored. And then in particular, obviously, to kind of return to some of the scenes that we had already seen and sort of understand it from their perspective, not just in a Rashomon way, but in a, yeah. in a kind of like um, a, a, a new way that really taps into 
someone's experience of the world. Mm-hmm. Um, it was something that we had sort of planned all along. And, and in addition, you know, obviously like some of the big, um, uh, you know, backstory secrets are sort of revealed in that episode too. Mm-hmm. Uh, but Sam did such an amazing job of kind of revealing them through character and not just as sort of plot turns um, in, in the form of Matthew and who is Matthew and what was he doing and how does that all connect to the backstory of what happened and, and, you know, and to Ruth's life and to her relationship with Pangborn. And so it, it's definitely something that once we, from a very early time, I think even at like the pitch phase, Sam and I were sort of had pitched some nugget of that episode um, that we sort of started thinking about how do we lay in the structures throughout the season that would really help us set set ourselves up in the best way for that episode to deliver its payload. And so um, so that was kind of a big goal throughout was was in a way, you know, you don't really have that much access to Ruth. Um, and to her experience in those in the earlier episodes, mm-hmm. um, you start to get a little bit more as the as as you you know kind of head into episodes four and five and then and then six, you get you know her sort of explaining the chess in, in the big yeah. chess scene with Wendell. But but like you you don't really know what her experience of the world is until you really get to that episode. And th- and that was something that we that we loved and uh, as a as a sort of conceit. And then Sam took that you know that conceit and and really turned it into the wonderful you know journey that it is for sissy and sissy and greg utanis like it was it was a a real labor of love for everyone involved and and um and sissy you know is in every scene and and so of course from a production perspective it was it was a lot of work and it took a lot of uh, pre-planning and and um but it just you know i think does in as you're saying um we hope you know sort of feel like the emotional um a big part of the emotional culmination of the season oh totally i mean just, even just the echoes to what pangborn was had, had already mentioned to henry at the hospital with the the, the anecdote that kind of taps at the end it, it's just oh God, yeah it's just it kills me it just kills me and it, it's 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 so it makes the show the whole season there's such a rewarding rewatch from it because just even going back to some of these older episodes there's so much more context that you kind of get from specifically with ruth i mean like you had just mentioned like yeah like even rewatching the chess when she's explaining the chess pieces to wendell there's so much more gravity at that at hand when you rewatch it and you're like holy shit like this is she is just emotionally so distraught from this um because you just see how puzzled it is even with her even with the pieces involved it's still so hard um and yeah there's just so much tragedy in that and i mean and obviously where it leads up to which is just still shocking i mean i paused the computer for a second i was like wait a second this is a dream right or like this is crazy like what like like so and and that's a huge that's a huge 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 twist and i wondered did you talk to stephen king um before that moment you know with Mm -hmm. painborn's death or was it was it something that that you I mean how involved first off how involved was he and how, when did you actually yeah. meet him I mean I guess that's a better question to start off with but it seems like that was like something that they I felt like did they talk to him yeah, before? That, <laughs> yeah but you don't you don't you put it this way you don't kill Alan Pangborn without talking to the man who created Alan <laughs> that's Pangborn. what I figured yeah. <laughs> um, yeah so so I mean the, the the short answer is yes and 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 that that you know we had um when we first pitched the idea sort of 
sent a um, a very long and and detailed kind of concept of what the season what the series would be in season and um, and were of course trepidatious about um, the sort of um, how how um, uh, controlling Steve would want to be. And of course that, that, and, and in terms of, we would have, you know, done anything to, we're such fans to please him. Um, and so, and, and, and so maybe trepidation is even the wrong word, but we, we, I don't think we knew how uh, much license he would give us. Mm -hmm. And I think that, that comes from, um, uh, honestly from his relationship with JJ, you know, in the end, like, I think that he is, they have a mutual admiration society. And I think that, that, that trust, um, that he had in JJ sort of gave him the confidence to allow us to, to try some things, Mm -hmm. both in terms of like returning to Shawshank. I mean, that's another, that was another big one. Oh yeah. You know, it's like, that that's it, it sounds a little crazy on paper in a way um <laughs> uh and and so um returning to Shawshank and then and and then of course using Pangborn in the way that we were and then ultimately killing Pangborn you know so all of those things were kind of um elements that so from sort of top down at, from the from the series pitch all the way down to the specifics of of how we were going to use these characters we at every turn wanted to make sure that we had Steve's blessing and mm-hmm. that he felt good about it. And, and, um, and, and yeah, and he really has been amazingly supportive and not, um, and not, you know, I think encouraging and, and, and sometimes suggesting, you know, especially Castle Rock connections, which has been great, but like, but, but, but really given us the freedom to make it into the series that we wanted to make it and to sort of honor these characters and these settings and, and this world that he created. Was there ever any, um, did you ever ask him if you wanted to write an episode? <laughs> or was it that... <laughs> You know, he, he's, I feel like he, you know, he's spent his time sort of, uh, uh, certainly dabbled in Hollywood plenty, mm-hmm. but I feel like, you know, his great project continues. And yeah. so his, like his books come first. And, and, and so, um, um, of course we'd be delighted to have him write an episode, <laughs> yeah. but it, it, ha- it hasn't come up yet. Put it that way. Well, well, it's interesting too, because, you know, he returned to Castle Rock for the first time in a while with Gwendy's button box last year. And, yeah. and I did wonder, like, was that, uh, just happenstance like or was that kind of like a conscious effort to maybe try to start building some more you know world for you guys to use in the future installments or something was I, it... I i i would love to think that we are um a, a bright enough star in the king universe that, that that he would be writing to us but um i actually <laughs> think that he um you know this is a guy who has a thousand stories in mm-hmm. his head at all times and 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 probably another you know, dozen novels that we've all never seen before um, and that haven't been published that are probably great. And I think that like, you know, I, I don't know. I don't know what made him return to, 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 to Castle Rock in, in for Gwendy's Button Box, but um, but it, it was kind of delightful to see him dabbling in that world again. Um, there certainly was no pre-communication about it. <laughs> okay. Yeah. Because it was just so, it's just so strange. It was just like, wow, the stars really did align here. And that's interesting. Um, yeah. You know, and speaking of other stories and, and just having a million different stories for Castle Rock, you know, there's been a lot of talk about and this being an anthology series and how you want to kind of take this uh, around to different eras. And, you know, I wondered, uh, is it going to be integral in the future to kind of try to center around other books? Are you trying to avoid any prequelizing? Do you have um, do you have like a sort of map of where you want to go already? 
um, you know. Yeah, we definitely have a map, and 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 honestly, had one from the very beginning in terms of um, in terms of thinking again and thinking about that big tent and kind of the, the kind of story and the characters that we wanted to touch on in mm-hmm. in, in subsequent seasons. Um, you know, I I think that the the short answer is there are no there are just as King is not obsessed with rules in terms of the format of the show. We don't think that we don't feel that there are sort of rules or no prequels or no sequels or, you know, I, I, I think truly we, we started, you know, with the town, we started with the people of this town and that, and, and I think that the journey could kind of lead out from there in just about any way. And, and, and I don't think there's any sort of um, structural conceits that we would rope ourselves off from. Interesting. Interesting. Well, I, uh, I I do have a just a speed round of fun questions that would be more okay. specific to to King's past in the works, uh, uh-huh. and, and I always ask this to all the guests, and I think this would be uh, your perfect candidate, and I'm very interested to see what your answers are going to be for these. But uh, okay. obvious ones, but you know, like what's your favorite Stephen King book? I I I can't resist the stand it it, yeah. it is the one that i return to over and over again and yeah and I, I feel like you know if there are i guess there's sort of the it camp but if there are two camps the dark tower camp and the stand camp yeah. um uh you, and and you can love them all but if you if you if there's a first among equals for me it is the stand interesting interesting what what, what is it about the the book that uh that really draws you in you know to me it's the it's the shift of the kind of story it is mm-hmm. like that. The thing that I love so, and this is what I mean about like, sort of, it's not that, that, that surprises in, you know, in, in King work exactly the same way that surprises in say lost works, mm-hmm. but, but it is the fact that it is the case that often you sort of go into a King book and you think you're reading one kind of story and then you discover you're reading a very different kind of story halfway through, mm-hmm. you know, there's an element or a, a shift and the stand to me is like the quintessence of that. It's like you start with this, you know, Dickensian medical thriller, a post-apocalyptic <laughs> medical yeah. thriller and this sort of band of, you know, merry and strange people. And then you end up in this, supernatural battle between good and evil with mm-hmm. actual, you know, people who can travel among worlds. And like, that is just such a feat of imagination to me. Yeah. And one that like how you pull that off and have it not seem absurd, but rather one of the like iconic books of the last 50 years. Like I just, I, I will always be in all of the, awe of that. Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. Um, I wonder if it's uh, in this book, but a uh, favorite character. Oh, yeah. I mean, I, it's really, it's really hard. That's a really hard one. I guess if I have to choose one, um, I will actually choose Margaret White. Interesting. Um, I partially because I think it's, it, it and, and again, like, the, the sort of, ensemble, you know how like at the SAG Awards, they give like the ensemble award? Mm-hmm the best cast like i would give that to the stand um but but i feel like there's something that about that first book that kind of launched what it what what stephen king was and is and obviously like you can feel the echoes of margaret white in the in the um you know in in the dna of season one of of castle rock yeah yeah um 
you know? And, and so I think that like, there's just something so wonderfully weird and evil, but also in her own strange way, attempting to be a loving parent. Um, and maybe it's because I have my own child now that I'm thinking this way, but, mm -hmm. um, but uh, you know, I, I, I don't know. I think there's just something, um, I feel like, I feel like in a weird way, as much as Carrie and her powers kind of define what it is to, for something to be Kingian, like, I feel like Margaret is sort of the, 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 you know, other side of that, oh, absolutely. you know, that, yeah. that like, that that character is, is like the er character for all other Stephen King villains. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, cause she's terrifying. Absolutely terrifying. Um, <laughs> And I, I guess maybe this kind of falls in this one too. Maybe favorite villain would be Margaret White, or um, is there someone uh, else? Well, sure. I mean, <laughs> um, I mean, I, I, I guess, um, I guess that I will, I'll actually go for Annie Wilkes for that Ooh, one, nice. um, because in a weird way, like I feel like Margaret White, she's a villain, but she's like. She's like a villain with good intentions. Like, I'm not sure Annie Wilkes has good intentions. Yeah, um, no, not really. <laughs> or, or at least by the time we meet her, I think she's done with good intentions. Yeah. Um, yeah. And and it's such a crazy, when you when you go back to that book, I mean, Kathy Bates certainly, you know, leveled us all with that performance. But even when you go back to the book and you sort of look at that insane tone of voice that King gave her and mm -hmm. like turning that person into a, an actual scary villain, which is like, she's just like the least scary person ever, yeah. but somehow like he manages to turn her into this like terrifying imprisoning force, despite the fact that like she's super prude and talks in these like hilarious, you know, slangy silly ways like it's like what could be more terrifying than that oh yeah he's really good at that i mean it's i mean look at randall flag even like he's you know you meet him and you're like oh that's bad this guy's awful like he's supposed to be you know the epitome of uh evil but then you you, you kind of love him <laughs> you're like you're like totally. actually you know he kind of you know he's kind of an anti-hero in a way but you're and then you're like well no not really but but you still kind of like side with him he always does that he he's managed he manages to really subvert your sort of uh notions of, yeah. of any of the character which i love but um yeah. so one last one is uh the what do you what is the scariest moment for you reading a stephen king book mm. well I, I don't know if you mean that in sort of a uh a writerly way or like in an actual like is there a moment that is the scariest moment i would say just you know, or like can i name my scariest moment i think know? for you yeah like the ones that like really are just kind of that i mean i always think back to like when my dad warned me about the shining he's just like well you know there's one section that i literally had to put the book down for like a couple of days because i didn't want to go back to it and and i wonder and i always think of that like that type of reaction where you're like okay jesus christ this is a little much or like i can't like this actually is just really sticks with me. Um, that, that kind of haunts you in a way. Um, you know, I think for me, it's always the, um, the anticipation in a way mm -hmm. for, I think I'm a guy who's sort of more scared of what's to come than what is here. Yeah. Um, it, and, and so I think that like, when I think about, um, 
let's see, what would be like all the moments that sort of pop into my head are moments of anticipation. Yeah. <laughs> um, uh, you know, I, I, I'll, I'll use as an example for me, I mean, this, this from the movie, but, but maybe I'll, since I've been talking all about the books, like when you look to go to the shining, when you look at the big wheels sequence in the shining, mm-hmm. you know, at, at him riding around the, the, the hotel that, that geographically or that um, can't actually exist, yeah. you know, riding a path that doesn't exist. Like to me, that's probably the scariest moment in the movie, mm-hmm. weirdly, because it, it it's just that sense of, of dread. Yeah. Like it's just that sense of there's, and you know, it's like, obviously once you show the shark, it's always hard to compete with the shark and, and, and somehow King manages to, to, it's always hard to compete with the dream of the shark, yeah. you know, and, and, but somehow King manages to do it over and over again. But like, I feel like it's like those moments that are, or to take another one from the movie, from a movie, the moment, the moment in misery when he, when he puts the, when he puts the figurine in the wrong direction. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah. You know, like it's always those moments of anticipation that scare me, the scare me the most. Um, I, I don't know. Maybe it's it's also connected to me being a guy who who likes the dialogue scenes in comic book movies than I more than I like the actual action sequences. Um, no, <laughs> I, I agree waiting. with you. Like, I'm excited. You know. Yeah. No, um, I I think that so, totally makes sense. Yeah. So I guess those would be two that I would cite as sort of anticipatory moments that mm-hmm. that, that that scare me the most. Well, it's interesting because I think that speaks a lot to what you brought to Castle Rock. I mean, they're one of the the greatest. I mean, one of the thing, the greatest strengths, I think, of the series, and especially when you watch like an episode, um, like the Queen or or, uh, or even um, the Box, is you know there is a, a, a sort of buildup. You know, you've you've earned these moments because you've had that anticipation and you've teased it in in subtle ways, not in obvious ways, and so that when it actually does happen, you're like, oh shit, why didn't I actually think about this? Like how did I miss this? Or like, how did I, how did this get by me? And it's like, well, it didn't really get by me. It was always there. It was like this lingering notion. And I think that's something that really is welded into these episodes for sure. Um, and even that's why I'm like, I finished episode eight and I'm like, God damn it. Like, because it's just, it's that anticipation that's just right there that I'm just like, I don't know where this is going to go. I might have some ideas. I know that this is, there's some sort of, there's so many variables that I have floating in my head right now. that it, it does feel like a Stephen King book. And, and, that's, and that's something I put in my review is just that, that you know, for the first time in God knows how many years, like this does feel like an adaptation that feels like you're reading a book by Stephen King again, which is just, I don't know if that's because you're a writer yourself or if it's just you've done your homework or it just happens. I, I don't know, but I just got to congratulate you on that because that's, that's I think it's the, the, the strongest suit uh, of this series. For Thank sure. you. Thank you, know. you. That's very kind of you. Yeah. And, and, you know, I think part partially like the, the, it is the, the sort of moments of restraint in a way that are sometimes hard because mm-hmm. in, especially in a series, you know, in a, in a, in an era of TV where, where you sort of, you know, need to push and push story and have crazy things happen at all times in order to sort of, it, 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 it takes a little bit of patience at times, I think, um, to sort of wait out the anticipation of something. And so um, we, we really appreciate you and view and, and viewers like you. Well, Hey, I appreciate you doing this. I'm hope to God we get multiple seasons. I want this to, to be like an, another Fargo. We just keep bouncing around in different years and whatnot. I would love it. 
Um, but thank you. you know, thank you so uh, much. From your lips to the Crimson King's ears. So. <laughs> I like that. I like that. Well, good luck with everything. Right. Seriously. And <laughs> thank you, you know, thanks for taking the time this afternoon to talk to me. I cannot wait for the final two episodes. I am dying to see them. So thank uh, you very so excited. much. Okay. Have Take a good care. one. Thanks a lot. Bye-bye. How about that interview, huh? That was a pretty good one. Let's go to the next one, then. Yeah. Well, bring it on, Sam. What you got? (laughs) (laughs) Hello? Hello. Hey, Sam. How you doing? Due for the first one. Yeah. How are you? Good, good, good. This is great. You know, thank you so much for, you know, taking the time to sit with us, especially on, you know, such an impromptu notice. I mean, yeah, that's Mike talking. This is Randall. So <laughs> good to meet you. Hello, Randall. Mike, it's, it's kind of thrilling for me because Dusty and I do a lot of phone interviews together and um, it's inevitably incredibly confusing for the person on the other end of the phone. So <laughs> now I finally get a taste of my own terrible medicine. So <laughs> I will try. I'll try to figure out who's who. All right. Let's start off with the very beginning. Usually we ask all our guests what their earliest experiences are with Stephen King and seeing how obviously the show is emblematic of a true fan of Stephen King. So you just really wanted to know what were some of the earliest experiences? Where did you start? What was the first book? You know, et cetera, et cetera. I will tell you, I'll break it down for you. I went to this summer camp called Camp Kiev in Nobleboro, Maine for seven years starting at a very tender age. I think I was like seven years old when my parents packed me off to this sleepaway camp. So like the state of Maine already, just hearing the syllable Maine, like triggers a whole bunch of Pavlovian feelings of primal childlike fear and terror and dislocation. But I was at Camp Kiev when I discovered Stephen King. The campers would sort of pass around dog-eared, broken-spined, mass-market, paperback copies of Stephen King books, kind of like, you know, fetish porn or something. And, you know, there's a sense that they were illicit and they were to be treated with a great deal of respect. And so that, that was it. That was sort of where I came to Stephen King. My kind of primal memory of those books is a memory of reading them, you know, by a little, like, pen light flashlight in a tent somewhere in the middle of nowhere in Maine, like, with an extremely full bladder, completely petrified and unwilling to unzip the tent and go outside. Um, so that's my sort of Stephen King experience. And then like a lot of people, you know, I would see the books on my parents' bookshelf. And uh, I think a lot of us have this memory of what it was to take down a book that we weren't really prepared for as a reader, you know, like reading the racy parts of Clan of the Cave Bear or whatever that experience is. And a lot of those memories for me are associated with Stephen King. And so uh, there was a kind of sense of reverence connected to those books from a pretty early age. Did you ever skip ahead to like find the bloody parts or anything? Oh, of course. <laughs> of course. Of course I did. That's my now, first now, memory with King. It's like such an act of heresy. You know, I make TV for a living and we talk all the time about the, the fact that we will agonize over the levels of some sound cue or packed sound be more of a bone crack should it be wetter should it be a flat and then in the end like somebody watches the show on their elliptical machine with earbuds on and like misses (laughs) the moment completely you know what i mean it's just like this is a sad reality of the moment that we live in and so i feel some remorse about this was definitely guilty skipping ahead and skipping around oh sure well do you remember what the first book that really grabbed you was from king yeah. Well, so that that first book that I read was Pet Cemetery, which nice. remains in some ways the book that I find most terrifying. Yeah, I agree. Um, and it really fucked me up for life. I Like, I was too young to read it. It was a mistake. You know, yeah. like, I'm, I'm probably still paying for that mistake. We're all in the same boat. We all read this stuff way too young. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, exactly. I, that's what, I assume your podcast is like 
a really inexpensive form of group gestalt therapy and someday you'll, you'll work it out, you know? Um, but, you know, then there was this other experience I had. It was going to sound like it was a kind of like, a, you know, a pre-scripted answer in some ways, but it sort of speaks, I think, to Stephen King's breadth as a writer. My other primal experience of Stephen King is that my dad read Eyes of the Dragon to me at night uh, when I was a kid. And so I have this memory of waiting for dark so that I could get into bed. My dad would sit down and read the next chapter of what I, I was obviously much too young to understand was a Randall Flagg story. You know, I, I mean, I, I sort of didn't understand the context. And I had only a really superficial idea of who Stephen King was as a writer. But that was sort of the other formative experience of Stephen King that I had is that um, I just I kind of fell into that world. And it was a bonding experience with my dad. I have a five-year-old now and a three-year-old who drive me berserk. And um, <laughs> it's exciting to sort of think about being able to perpetuate that cycle of whatever it is. Not a cycle of violence, but, you know, to read that book, at least to those kids when they get a little older. Aww. Well, how far back does the idea of Castle Rock go for you then? I mean, at what point did you say... All right, I want to go back to this town. I want to continue this story. Dusty and I have been talking about this and trying to like reconstruct for a while. So I co-created Castle Rock with Dusty Thomason, mm-hmm. a really old dear friend of mine. We went to college together, and we've worked together in almost every kind of permutation or context imaginable. Like he gave me my first job in TV. I hired him to work on the first show that I created, and we co-created this show and worked on it together. But there's this email that I excavated from an old dead email account of mine that I sent Dusty, I want to say like 11 years ago. It basically, it was a sort of broad strokes of a pitch for the show that became Castle Rock. And sort of the genesis of it was one of the things about Stephen King that I found really fascinating and provocative and also just kind of crazy was the idea that he returns to the scene of the crime and that he like keeps raining disasters down on these towns in Maine. You know, I was like, mm-hmm. super into the geography of Stephen King and the sort of like cultural anthropology of Maine and Stephen King. But also, you know, this question you think like after the rabbit dog and the second serial killer and the debt, like I'm out of here, motherfuckers, you know, like yeah. so, so the, the idea that Castle Rock kind of persists as a town that was really interesting to me. Like, I was a big H.P. Lovecraft fan, too, when I was a kid, and, mm-hmm. and I felt the same way about Arkham, Massachusetts. You know, it was like there's something kind of really delicious about the idea of the most ill-fated tract of land on the planet and what life would be like there. So, you know, I sent him this probably two or 3,000-word email pitching a TV show set in Castle Rock. Obviously, I, like, I did not have the hubris to think that Stephen King would ever give us permission to set a show in the actual town of Castle Rock. So yeah. it was sort of like, I'm somewhat ashamed to admit, I was sort of pitching like a generic brand Castle Rock, you know, like the Sam's Club Castle yeah, Rock, yeah. you know, flash forward, I guess, a decade. And wow. uh, I worked on a lot of different projects in the meantime. And so with Dusty and this show that I made called Manhattan about the atomic bomb, this is mm-hmm. kind of period drama about the moral crises of nuclear physicists, which try telling a bunch of executives in a pitch room that that's your TV show that you want them to make. Uh, you know. Anyway, but it was a show that I loved making. I had a really profound experience making it with Tommy Schlamme, the director of The West Wing, who's mm-hmm. my partner in crime, and Dusty worked on it, and many of my dearest friends, and the cast was really wonderful. And then we got canceled, and the network has basically since like folded up its tent. And there's this sort of moment of existential confusion and I really wasn't sure what was next. 
And then I just kind of remembered this kernel of an idea from a decade earlier, and Dusty and I started kind of batting around some ideas, and then we embarked on, you know, what was a fairly long process, putting together our creative team to make the show, you know, going to Bad Robot and J.J. Abrams to get J.J. on board. As you guys know, I'm sure J.J. is, you know, um, like a fanatical and obsessive Stephen King fan. Yeah, yeah. He's this incredible force of personality and kind of creative dynamo, so he was sort of the perfect partner for this project, and Mm -hmm. then we reached out to Stephen King and kind of put our team together and got his blessing and um, to Hulu. And, and then we went off to war and spent a year and a half making it. And, oh my God. and now it's on your little computer at home. This is true. <laughs> yeah. This is true. I do not watch it on my computer as much as possible. I need to watch it on the big screen. Thank you. Yeah. I always tell these guys, I'm like, I, I just can't watch it on my laptop. If I need to, I put it, I use the HDMI and put it to my TV because it just drives me nuts. Yeah. God bless you. I feel like this has been a public service announcement. You don't have to tell people at home, turn off motion smoothing on your television. Do be sure you do not have Auto Motion Plus. You know, make sure that your 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 setting get go to the cinema settings on your TV. Turn off the volume. Seriously, my parents have the smoothing, and it drives me crazy. Oh, I, I, I can't stand it. Last weekend, and it was I was like, turn that off. Yeah. Oh my god! But it's like the sixth sense. It doesn't bug some people. You know yes. what I mean? Like I see dead people wherever I go. If I'm in like a dentist's office and they have motion smoothing on their TV, like I will leap out of my skin and drive me crazy. <laughs> I'm curious, though, uh, were there any books in particular from the Castle Rock universe that really informed sort of the construction of the first season? Obviously, I feel like you've pulled from a lot of them, but were there any that were really heavy on your mind as you were working on it? Yes, for sure. I guess there are two ways to answer that. One is we spent a lot of time rereading Stephen King, this sort of like Mm -hmm. work up the temerity to try to write this show. Uh, and obviously, as you guys know, it's like a fool's errand to try to reread everything. Yeah. You know what I mean? Like, there will be another six books by the time you, like, make a dent in the library. <laughs> so, and that was, that was one, one reason why it was great that we made the show with a staff of writers we love, because um, we had the ability to kind of divide and conquer. But um, obviously, we, we returned to as many of the Castle Rock stories and novels as we could. And I love a bunch of them, much of them you know, or some of my favorite Stephen King work is Castle Rock work. But the kind of like the foundational books for us as we were making this season included Shawshank, which obviously sort of like brushes up against Castle Rock because uh, Red committed his crime in Castle Rock and there's a reference to the Castle Rock call. And because it's sort of like adjacent to the body in different seasons, it sort of, it, you know, it feels like a kind of, Maybe that doesn't live in Castle Rock, but it's like a bedroom community, Mm -hmm. you know, like it's adjacent. But, you know, another book that was really important to us isn't a Castle Rock book at all. It was The Green Mile. We sort of decided really early on that we had to sort of perform like a literary stomach stapling and restrain our appetites and kind of focus (laughs) on a sort of sub-genre of Stephen King story. Yeah. in making this season, if we, you know, wanted to have any hope of getting out alive, it's like there kind of isn't a genre that Stephen King hasn't at least dabbled in. Oh, yeah. You know, the library is so vast. And so Dusty and I, we really loved and responded to the prison stories and the stories about crime and punishment and almost every human being with a pulse and a heart. We really, really revered Shawshank, both the novella and the movie is probably, you know, our favorite adaptation. 
and love the Green Mile too, and thought it was really interesting that clearly there's something about that space and the sort of themes of incarceration and death row that Stephen King is sort of fixated on. And so it, it felt like um, telling our own kind of Stephen King prison story, that, that was sort of an exciting prospect for us. So a lot of the books and the stories that we returned to were prison books and prison stories. When you're saying like Green Mile, were there any particular characters or sort of motifs of that story that you're absolutely trying to lean on that you wanted to bring to Castle Rock other than just the prison? Or was it the majestical qualities of it a little bit? You know, because I mean, a lot of the stories that involve the more dramatical elements for his books don't really have that sort of fantastical quality to it. You know, like, I mean, like the body is pretty standard gritty story, same with Shawshank, but the the Green Mile definitely kind of makes that leap. Was that kind of what you were talking about also? Yeah. I mean, in a weird way, there were some aspects of this story that we're we're telling in this season that felt like they were kind of photo negatives of some aspects of both Rita Hayworth and the Shawshank Redemption and the Green Mile in the sense that Shawshank Redemption fundamentally is a story about the day when the roles at Shawshank decreased by one. And it felt like it was sort of interesting to imagine the inverse, to imagine a story that has as its kind of starting gun the discovery of an extra prisoner at Shawshank. That, yeah. you know, this is our day when the roles are one prisoner heavier, and what mm-hmm. might that mean? And then, too, you know, there's this sense in the Green Mile that it is engaged with questions of what it does to you morally to work in a prison, a, a sort of bigger picture of what the kind of horrors and evils of incarceration might look like, mm-hmm. you know, and, and the death penalty. But at the center of it is this sort of angel, in a way, you know, is a prisoner who has the power to heal, who seems to um, be a, a kind of force for good in, in the world. And, um, and we wanted to construct a story around a character who is much more, I guess we say, ambiguous in terms of the question of, of whether he's a force for good or evil in the story. Yeah, you have that very howling man uh, quality, which I love that you reference in the story also, just because, I mean, that's pretty much been the mystery even now up to this point, because we're, we're on episode seven. I've seen episode eight, but it still even has that sort of mystery of like, well, <laughs> what is the kid? Is this a force of good, force of evil? This episode that this is actually going to appear on this interview, we, we debated heavily whether the kid is good or bad, because I think even up to now, you could still argue otherwise, even if there are sort of menacing qualities to him in this episode, particularly, especially his relationship to Ruth, you can look at it some way and say, well, he, yeah. he could actually be trying to protect her too, still. Was that blurred line definitely intentional or am I, or now are we just totally off and you're like, no, he's evil. Like, what are you doing? <laughs> like, you're, you're looking way too into this. <laughs> no, yeah, like, we fucked up spectacularly if it's not totally clear. No, I will say that, like, I, I think that people turn to genre and to the horror genre in particular for different reasons and have mm-hmm. different expectations of horror. You know, there are horror movies that kind of function culturally like roller coaster rides. Mm-hmm. You know, you buckle in. You're going to sit in your seat for 90 minutes or a couple hours. There are a whole bunch of really conventional plot turns that you can anticipate. Um, You will probably jump in your seat. You know, usually some force of evil is presented to the character at the center of the story. And, you know, in the great kind of classic Shakespearean mold, you know, there's a sense that the stars are out of joint and need to be set right. At some point, the protagonist kind of figures out what the rules of engagement are, you know, like, uh, how, do, how do you slay the dragon? Mm-hmm. Um, and eventually, evil is vanquished and order is restored. Or maybe there's a little ironic harbinger of doom at the end of the movie that, you know, leaves the door open for a sequel. And then it's sort of like wash, rinse, repeat, you know? Yeah. Um, 
the kind of horror that gets under my skin is much more ambiguous and makes me feel more uncomfortable as a viewer or as a reader. Obviously, famously, Stephen King has pretty strong opinion about the Kubrick adaptation of The Shining. Yeah. But, like, I find that movie almost impossible not to watch if I flip past it on oh, TV. Absolutely. Like 1130 at night or whatever. Yeah. And it's, and it's sort of like, it's like wherever I get on the merry-go-round, I'm going to finish it. You know what I mean? No, totally. um, Totally. But I also find it almost impossible to watch. You know, it makes me want to jump out of my skin Mm -hmm. for a whole bunch of reasons. And by the way, having children of my own has just deepened my relationship to that movie, you know, because there's something so primal and disturbing about the idea that you might be capable of hurting the people that you hold dear and you're supposed to protect and it, that's it's a really disturbing idea yeah um but the movie is constructed in really fascinating ways when you think about i get to the end of the movie and you know i've read the book and so i have a different perspective on the material as well but like you get to the end of the movie and like you tell me what it was about you mm-hmm. know what i mean like you explain to me what the supernatural rules of engagement in the shining were you know i mean there's sort of a paradox is presented at the end and readers have a different point of view about what's happening in the story but part of what makes the movie so enduringly unsettling to me is that it sort of teases my ability to um reconcile some aspects of the storytelling yeah. or to kind of impose a logic on it but then it, it sort of like eludes explanation in the end in mm-hmm. some ways too i have the same feeling about blue velvet you know oh, it's totally. one of the reasons why like david lynch at his best it will haunt me forever you know it's sort of like the puzzle that can't be solved yeah. uh, or reconciled ultimately you know now in this story there are a whole lot of questions that proliferate this sort of this story that we're telling this season and we knew it was going to be really important to gratify the audience by answering most if not all of those questions but I also felt, and Dusty felt too, that the most interesting story we could construct would be a story that forces the audience to make some judgments or choices for themselves about even the nature of the story that is being told mm-hmm. and about the characters and whether the characters are villains or heroes in the story or neither one of those two things. Yeah, speaking of characters, we got so stoked when we figured out that Scott Glenn was playing Alan Pangborn in this. And I especially did because Needful Things is in my top three King books of all time. I absolutely adore it. And I've always felt like Pangborn's story never felt quite finished, at least for me personally. So I was very, very excited to see him pop up as this old grizzled character in Castle Rock. So I'd love to just hear about what was your decision in bringing that character or why that character specifically, and did you always have Scott Glenn in mind? We loved Alan Pangborn as a character, yeah. too. I, I mean, I'll, I'll also say, like, I was a, a big magic nerd as a kid, so, yeah. like, already it's just candy for me to introduce the character who's an amateur magician. But also, he sort of belongs on the Mount Rushmore of Stephen King protagonists, and he's certainly the great hero of the town of Castle Rock, and I, lo- I love Bannerman, too, and Tom Skerritt in, uh, yeah. in The Dead Zone is, yeah. like, you know, is grizzled and perfect main sheriff as you'll ever see on screen. But we loved Pangborn and we thought it'd be really interesting to check in with him in this story. And by the way, like, I think there probably could have been a different approach to this material that would have involved writing more or less a kind of procedural Stephen King anthology that Mm -hmm. follows a young Alan Pangborn, you know, on his daily beat. That would have been a different kind of approach to the material. But for us, I think there was something really appealing about the idea of checking in with Pangborn decades later 
of meeting a pangborn who looks and feels quite different from the pangborn that we know from the earlier works. And, you know, in a way to let pangborn become almost an avatar or a personification of the town in the story, if that makes sense. It's sort of like, you know, we think of Pangborn as kind of the institutional memory of Castle Rock. He's yeah. the guy, you know, who knows where all the bodies are buried. And it was interesting to think about what the costs might be of knowing all of the things that Pangborn knows, having experienced the things that Pangborn has experienced. And so, you know, just as we sort of, we made this early creative decision that we didn't want to kind of reboot Castle Rock and tell a story about this kind of white picket Norman Rockwell town that gets a kind of genre meteor thrown at it. Instead, we wanted to check in on a town that has suffered a lot Mm -hmm. and bears a lot of scars where the bottom has fallen out that kind of feels like a dead American small town in the same way it sort of it felt appealing to us to reconceive of Pangborn as kind of a lion in winter who has a lot of hard miles on the odometer and to sort of tell a, a kind of final chapter in his life in some ways a story that is about retrospection and regret and then a love story with Sissy Spacek's character and, and man being able to write for Scott Glenn and Sissy together was just incredible and they and their chemistry is just uh, so good i mean i love their chemistry in this show and especially with just the scene when they're talking about magic and bed and uh it's just there's something so special and unique and that could only come from two veterans that have like have a history as well i mean i love that the fact that they share resumes together so it's, there is this like sort of built-in history that you get from their own career that they seep into their own characters that are on screen that i just absolutely get from their two performances in this especially in this episode you know which are paramount to have these emotions oh, tied. Man, i feel the same way it seems like kind of a, a wackadoodle thing to say about a big jj abrams stephen king genre show but that scene with the two of them you know, learning the French drop in yeah. bed. It's really, it's really one of my favorite moments in the entire season. Yeah. I think they're both, they're so present and they're so true. And it also felt like a chance in writing this story for the two of them to tell a kind of love story that you don't really get to see on TV very often. You know, it's sort of like, mm-hmm. a, there's something very sexy about that scene to me. It's, re- it's sweet and it's emotional and it's, in, it's private mm-hmm. and it's kind of, and it's sexy too. And it feels true. And obviously, and it's all shot through with a whole bunch of extra complexities because of, her cognition and yeah. in the sense that um, their time together is limited, you know, um, but, you know, they're both, they're just so good. Sissy's so extraordinary and Scott was so present with her in those scenes. I just, I love those two together. And it's the, and their scenes and portraits that you just think about, especially after what happens at the end. And I kind of, and I asked Dustin about this last week and he had said that the two of you had spoken to King, but when, when you had conceived of the idea that this would be, the death of Alan Pangborn. First off, how early in the conception was that? And was that always the plan? And what was it like approaching King about it when you were talking to him about that? Well, we're going to take your character and uh, he's going out. We knew pretty early in the conception of the season. We knew that we wanted to give an entire episode to Ruth and use that episode to tell a kind of unorthodox horror story, you know, a, a horror story in a sense, you know, we talked a lot about Memento. I love Memento. And oh, I, yeah. I, I always thought it was really fascinating structurally to kind of construct a thriller about amnesia that asks the audience to deeply inhabit the experience of its protagonist. Just thought, I thought it was really brilliant. And I still think about it. And, and, you know, we knew that this character's memory loss and her dementia were going to be kind of central to her story. And, and so it felt really 
exciting to us to try to tell a story that would throw the audience into the deep end of the pool and force the audience to experience some of the confusion and dislocation that Ruth is experiencing throughout the season. I mean, in some ways, because she's Sissy Spacek, you can't miss her. But in another respect, she's sort of lived at the periphery of the storytelling for six hours. And in some ways, the season kind of invites the viewer to discount her experience. So it felt really cool and actually kind of poignant to us to build the season so that eventually Ruth becomes kind of the skeleton key or the master key that unlocks a whole bunch of the narrative questions that have kind of cropped up over the course of those previous hours, that in a way, she's sort of the custodian of a whole lot of secrets and answers, and her point of view becomes really crucially important. The idea of it being a skeleton key is really interesting, because that that makes me wonder then, did you have to start here? with this script and then build around it? I mean, you had said that you had known that this was, you know, early on. And honestly, this is such a conduit to everything yeah. else that's in, that happens this series so far. Oh my God. <laughs> I wish I could say that we had, if that might've been more logical kind of order of operations, but no, we, we, um, we had a card in our writer's room that said Ruth dementia. And it was sort of like, it was taped to the board and uh, it kind of loomed over us. And uh, we knew that episode was going to be important for a whole bunch of reasons. We thought it was going to be a chance to tell an episode that was going to diverge from the kind of rhythms of the storytelling for the rest of the season Mm -hmm. and um, structurally be kind of a challenge to the audience. And it felt really exciting and like kind of a high wire act. You know, it was either going to be great or it was going to be a total fucking spectacular disaster. And then we knew that Alan Tyneborn was going to die at Ruth's hand by the end of that episode. That was something that we knew um, pretty early on. I want to say that like within the first week in the writer's room or something. I think that Tom Spiziali, who's a consulting producer on the show and an old friend of Dusty's and mine, he worked on Manhattan with us. And mm-hmm. I think that Spies said at some point, kind of half-jokingly, we well, tell this whole story and then it ends with Ruth shooting the mailman. And, and it, was kind of a, it was kind of a joke, but it was clear that there was something that was provocative that was at the center of it, which was the idea that we could take the opportunity of this episode to invite the viewer inside of the private world of this character mm-hmm. and then end the episode with a kind of cataclysmic event that has some really dramatic implications for all of the characters and for the story moving forward. And then it, it just followed pretty quickly on the heels that the real tragedy of that story and the ending of this love story would be Tangborn dying at Ruth's hand. And so, so we knew that. We knew that that was sort of like our um, North Star that helped us to orient as we were moving forward. But we actually had not broken any of the interior beats of the episode, and that wouldn't come for a bunch more months. And then as we got closer, we realized we well, got to reach out to Stephen King. And I think that we, we had a sense of kind of dread because I really wouldn't have been surprised if he said no. And by the way, he would have been absolutely reasonable to say no, yeah. but he didn't. He has been incredibly generous with his permissions throughout this process, and I hope that Viewers who love this character, you know, I'm sure that some people will feel conflicted about what it is to lose Alan Pangborn in this way in this story, but we didn't take it lightly. You know, we had a sense of humility about about the choice that we were making. No, I mean, and honestly, that final shot where you just see the chess piece and she looks back at it and knows that she's in the present, he's gone, and but she still still lingers there. It's just such a it's such a top 100 episode of all time sort of thing where you're just like, God, I'm going to, I'm going to remember this final shot forever. 
it seems like such a moment, you know, and then and the whole episode seems like a moment. And honestly, what we've discussed in this review for this week was just that it doesn't really matter what even happens at the end of this now, like of the season is just that it led to this story. And there's just something so singular about it. But at the same time, there's so much connective tissue to everything else that's going on. Like you said, it, I mean, Ruth really is a skeleton key here. But it does feel like a bottle in a way, you know, and, you know, to toe that line to make it seem singular, yet also part of this very complex story, that's had to have been the hardest script for you to write. Or was it actually kind of easy to kind of step away from like everything else? You know, I had the experience almost every time I sit down to write a script of panicking and forgetting how to do it. <laughs> sort of part of, yeah. I've realized that like, that's sort of part of the creative process for me, a lot of self-doubt and anxiety. But the process of writing this script was really different from any experience I've had writing before. Um, and part of it was, like I said, we didn't really break the story in the room. And that too, by the way, you know, I, I keep referring back to Tom Spezielli. He was sort of our godfather to us in making this season. And Tom, at some point, when it came time to move on from uh, episode six to episode seven and break the story, Tom said, I think you should just take that one and figure it out. You'll figure it out. We'll move on to the next one. You know, we we know where the story will leave the characters. Move on, and, and I think he had an intuition. You know, it, it, like not to get super personal about it, but this year was a really complicated year for me. My my mom died something like four days after we opened the Castle Rock Writers Room. I looked back at the calendar recently, and it just was just sort of like getting hit by a meteor. Obviously, there's never a good time, and dementia is something that I've been thinking about quite a lot for personal reasons. And so I think Tom had some intuition that it might be like kind of personally cathartic for me to like <laughs> disappear into a cave somewhere and yeah, yeah. try to wrestle this episode to the ground. And that's kind of what happened. I actually picked up and flew to Montana for a couple of weeks and I had my laptop and I realized as soon as I landed, you know, and opened up final draft, I realized how deep an ascent it was going to be because there was a lot that I really didn't know. You know, we'd had some ideas that felt really provocative and exciting about a story in which Ruth kind of occupies like a literal memory palace. Mm -hmm. You know, that that house has become the repository of a lot of memories, happy and unhappy, and that it would be interesting dramatically to be able to take her from one scene in 2018 with Andre Holland's Henry down the hallway into another scene in 1991 with an 11-year-old Henry and to sort of visually represent the experience of the character who never knows when she's going next. That yeah. felt really exciting and felt really rich. But there were a whole lot of questions that it raised, like how does she behave in those scenes? Does she have a consciousness of herself as a character who's 67 years old and alive in 2018? When she's sitting in the woods with young Henry and Matthew, doesn't she? You know, there are also just practical filmmaking questions like, does her wardrobe change or her mm -hmm, hair yeah. or her makeup? There's a whole lot of kind of wonky stuff to be figured out along the way. And so the truth is, it felt kind of like an altered state writing this episode. It came from a place of real obsession and love. And I didn't know if it was going to work. It was a really scary script to give to Dusty and our other writers and then the network to read and scary to deliver it to Greg Yatani's our director and to Sissy. And I, I you know, it's, it's such a kind of incredible piece of luck that Greg was the person who directed this episode. He, he's such an extraordinary director and brought so much of himself to it and invested so much love into this piece. And then Sissy is just, you know, a force of nature. She's 
completely extraordinary. And so in the end, it, it exceeded any hope I could have had. I can't even imagine the production for this. I, I mean, I just the blocking alone and just where everything was going to be placed. I mean, I mean, there's so many scenes just in this episode alone that are scenes from the past episodes also. Do you remember if they shot them in order or were there just th- scenes where you're filming like previous episodes? And you're like, oh, wait a second. This is going to come in handy. Yeah. Uh, you know, <laughs> for the most part, we shot the season in sequence and there were places where we had to marry new footage that was shot for episode seven up with old footage that was shot for, for example, episode one. Mm-hmm. You know, there's that moment at the end of the teaser of episode seven where Ruth kind of walks right back into a scene from the first episode of the show, yep. you know, and that, that can be sort of complicated from a production oh, totally. standpoint and lighting and color timing mm-hmm. and all that stuff. But then in the making of this episode itself, something that Greg felt really strongly about was that we should, as much as possible, shoot the piece in sequence, you know, to let Sissy go on the journey that Ruth goes on. Ordinarily, your production schedule is driven by, you know, practical considerations. And so you may be shooting the big cathartic emotional reunion scene with Pangborn on the porch, you know, on day two of a 11 or 12 day shoot. But Greg was really careful to arrange it so that it was as, as linear for Sissy as it could be. And I think, I think that was enormously helpful. I should say that those two, Sissy and Greg found this kind of creative conversation together in the making of this episode that I've rarely seen a director and an actor find based on a lot of trust and Sissy just gave herself completely to the logic of the episode and is so emotionally present in her performance throughout it. You know, the, the truth is, like, on paper, this episode is enormously complicated. Oh, I bet. <laughs> and there's a real hazard that it could have felt cerebral or airless or something. And the fact that it is so simple sounds like a pejorative, but there's a kind of emotional simplicity to it, a mm-hmm. kind of grounded emotional quality to the episode, like that's Sissy and that's Greg. And I should say too, by the way, the editor of this episode, a guy named Trevor Baker, who's really extraordinary and uh, yeah, it's about this beautiful piece of editing. So. Oh, absolutely. I mean, some of the, the, the transitions from, you know, when she yeah. leaves the Pangborn's office and then walks right into the living room again, it's just like, what the heck? It's like Michelle Gondry there. I mean, it was like, oh my God, this is insane. Yeah, well, we thought, it's funny, like, you know, Michelle Gondry was kind of a, a touchstone. We sort of talked about Charlie Kaufman and Michelle. It's sort of like, what would an amalgam of like, wait until dark and eternal sunshine of the spotless mind. You know, like what would yeah. it mean to put all of those things in a blender and turn them into a smoothie? Um, but you know, actually what, uh, when you talk about those transitions, Greg and I talked a lot about Cronenberg and the dead zone. Like I, I adore mm. that movie. It's oh, totally. like that's, that's also maybe it's sort of like not the right answer, but it, that might be my favorite Stephen King movie. It just, mm-hmm. um, I, and it may be in part because I've seen it so fucking many times that it just <laughs> feels like it's part of my DNA. But part of what is so extraordinary about the movie is the visual language of the transitions, you know, the mm-hmm. way that we move between environments. And it's really incredibly artful, but it's also almost mathematical. There's a real kind of precision to the visual language that helps you transition from, you know, a room in the hospital to the room where the nurse's daughter is trapped in the fire and, and then to bring Christopher Walken into that environment. And so that was sort of like a real touchstone for Greg and for me when we were sort of conceiving about how those transitions would work. And also I think the Dead Zone was a great kind of model for us because there are some visual and auditory cues that help the viewer orient and make sense of some pretty wacky transitions. Um, yeah. And that, that felt really important too. So there were aspects, of, you know, the 
sound mixing of this episode was really, really important. The sound team and, and our composer, uh, Chris Westlake, did an incredible job. Uh, all of these sort of like this invisible work that was really crucial to prevent the episode from just like spinning off into chaos. It, you know, yeah, that makes sense. Absolutely. And that's actually something we picked up on for sure. It's just that it would have been so easy to just do like the or like, you know, some sort of, <laughs> I mean, not that note, but like <laughs> some sort of like tra- audio transition, even like something like from Lost where it would just like go like and he's it, it it there wasn't that there was a subtleness to the way things kind of evolve and transition and i think that lends itself a little bit more realism to the situation as opposed to making it any seem too cinematic because I, there is something horrifying of just how fast the transitions happen especially at the very end when we kind of thought of like Aronofsky's mother from last year and the, the way where the funeral yeah, scene happens yeah. and everything is just going haywire. And that was jarring because it's just like, when is oh, the next one? That's, that's a know? really funny reference point. By the way, like, oh my God, what a piece of filmmaking. I had yeah. not saw mother after we had, had uh, shot this episode, but I just was so in awe of it, you know, yeah, about, about yeah. Piece of filmmaking. But, you know, that was something that we talked about too. Like there is not a kind of, single formula to the way that the transitions are executed visually in the story. Mm-hmm. You know, it, Greg is so masterful. I mean, there's incredible technical precision to the way that he and our DP, Jeff Greeley, shot those sequences. And Sissy was an incredible partner, you know, because Sissy's performance also just sort of pulls you through the transitions. Yeah. And also, it's, he, he's such a soulful director, you know, and so inside of the point of view of the piece as he's making it. But like, it would have been easy to just decide like that here's the language of how those transitions work. It's a shot of Sissy, a reverse shot of a new environment back to a shot that incorporates Sissy into the environment and we're off to the races, you know? Mm -hmm. Um, But the transitions kind of drift and evolve. And by the end of the story, you know, when she's like kind of clawing her way through that nightmare hallway full of funeral attendees and wedding guests and God knows what other kind of synapses are firing and memories are crashing in on her. It's sort of as if, all of the rules that govern the transitions between different time periods have kind of collapsed in on each other. Um, Particularly in this moment of maximal terror and anxiety for this character, that one way to dramatize it would be to say to the audience, you may feel as if you have become um, conversant in what the rules are that govern Mm -hmm. time travel in this story, but there are no rules. (laughs) You know what I mean? Like we're in this sort of lawless place even down to the question of when Sissy is interacting with her memories, are those experiences in the first person or the third person? You know, when she's hiding the chess pieces, she sees herself. In later scenes, she's sort of immersed in her memories. And generally, you know, she's not de-aged or she doesn't have makeup to make her look like she's however many years younger, um, but she's sort of at the center of her own memories. And then by the end, there's this sort of sequence that in some ways I think was inspired by the end of 2001. Yes. This sort of surrealism of of Ruth as a little girl and Ruth is presented as herself, but is indeed a younger version of herself, played actually by Sissy's daughter. And the sense that there isn't a consistent set of rules that govern the way her interaction with her memories is represented on screen, that felt really important. And it actually felt as crazy as it is to say in a piece of genre storytelling, it just it felt kind of truer in mm-hmm. a way. It felt like it would have been a really romantic lie to say in this story of dementia, there's a set of instructions and exactly. as long as you figure them out, this story will be easily navigated. It's a sort of more chaotic and a more disturbing experience that we wanted to represent for the audience. Absolutely. And I mean, it goes back to what you were saying before with like The Shining, where you just don't have any answers for it. It just is there. 
when you get to that sort of sense of unease and that place of unease, it makes the proceedings that are actually happening that much more impacting. And at that point, yeah, it just seems like an all bets are off sort of thing where it's just like, this is the descent and it could possibly get worse than this, but it's definitely, we have no idea if it's going to get better at this point. And that's definitely terrifying. And it honestly felt like the most like unnerving sequence of the entire series, I think so far, because there was such a lack of hope in that moment. It's just like, it's like the breadcrumbs are gone. You're lost in this abyss of madness. And for me, it's like that it doesn't get any more terrifying than that. So yeah, for me too. I mean, you can kind of read the episode in a few different ways. You can interact with it as this kind of genre story about time travel and paradox. If you want to you interact with it as a story about the like depredations of dementia, if you want to, and about a woman who's, you know, while this other kind of crazy genre story is taking place that unfolds over the course of the season, she has a wholly additional horror story that she's kind of grappling with. You know, um, for me, in some ways, like the scene in the doctor's office early on, that sort of felt like the scene where we show the shark. You know, that, yeah. that in a way is the scene where you name the monster and, and I love the way Scott Glenn plays that scene because it's a real sense to me that, like, all he wants is to protect the woman that he loves. Yeah. And he's a guy who has done battle with a whole lot of uncanny forces over the course of his career as a sheriff in this town, you know. And he's finally met a monster that he can't beat. You know, there's nothing he can do for her. And there's something about the kind of helplessness of a guy who's never helpless in that moment that I found really poignant. But to me, a kind of fundamental horror of this episode is that it's a story about a woman who kind of develops a coping mechanism, and at a certain point in the story, it fails her, and what's left is chaos, and then tragedy. God, yeah. it, sounds, it sounds really depressing. <laughs> no, but, it, but it's great, but, uh, though. Well, speaking of the fluidity of time and space, uh, I'd love to bring up something that Dusty told us last week, and just kind of get your thoughts on it. He basically said to us that once you go to the tower you can't go back. Which is something he credited you at saying. Yeah. When you guys were conceptualizing like how you're going to involve some of the Stephen King's works. Because we had talked about the Dark Tower and whether or not that was kind of off limits. And he kind of gave that warning of just like, yeah, there is like a point of no return when you start touching those texts. Yeah. I answer that question. First of all, I sort of feel like Dusty and I are playing the newlyweds game. I, I like <laughs> now I get to hear what Dusty said last week and, and I get to respond to it. You know, one thing that I love about Stephen King, and I'm probably just going to reiterate something he said to you last week, and I'm sure he will have said it better. <laughs> but, you know, a lot of the time you embark on a journey and you think you know what kind of a story you're reading. And by the time it ends, you're like on a different planet in a different galaxy. There's a sort of sense that just the terms of the storytelling and the cosmology of the stories can unfold in really unexpected ways. Mm -hmm. And that was definitely something that we took to heart and thought about in breaking this season of storytelling. So it kind of begins as kind of a bizarro story, but in a way, a naturalistic story about a legal problem, really. Yeah. You know, uh, there's the discovery of a kid in a prison and the institution doesn't know what to do with him. He presents kind of like a bureaucratic snafu to this corporation that's taken over Shawshank and in rides Henry Deaver to reckon with the problem. And by the end of the season, some of the existential implications of the story we've been telling get pretty wackadoodle. You know, it's kind of a story of a guy who pulls on a thread, Henry pulling on a thread and unraveling the sweater of reality as he has understood it. Um, mm -hmm. That was really interesting to us. And we sort of arrived at the point in the season where like a sleeve comes off that sweater. <laughs> um, <laughs> but in terms of the Dark Tower specifically, I mean, I guess I'm loath to say too much too explicitly in answer to that question. 
but I will say that there certainly are echoes between some of the unexplained events that are taking place in this season of storytelling and some bigger pieces of Stephen King mythology, and those are not accidental. That seems like such an obtuse answer. No, no, that isn't. I'm like... I'm, I'm, like, trying to testify without implicating myself in a federal it's like, crime. like, I plead the but, fifth. But no, I guess um, that's the best that I'm going to be able to do. No, I thought that was great. Honestly, I literally was giving the thumbs up because this is, <laughs> it's kind of like one of our theories that we've been having. This is a little bit, uh, you know, it kind of floats around that idea. You know, there's been yeah. a lot of discussion about there being an anthology, you know, and I wanted to know if there are other books that would you want to like maybe center around other books, like trying to prequelize them or sequelize them? Or do you want to just do your own thing now at this point and just be able to not even have to worry about the source material or is the source material always going to have to be there? So I'm going to in part have to take a powder on this question. Um, <laughs> so as not to spoil anything. And, and also because some of these creative conversations are unfolding right now. Yeah. Um, yeah. You know, Dusty and I went into it with a real point of view about what the trajectory of the show should be and what kind of a show we wanted to make. And I guess my non-answer answer would be that the genesis of the series was a sense of love for the source material. And so I don't think that Dusty and I ever imagined that those books would be the booster rocket that takes the show up into the, you know, out of the atmosphere and into, into space and then falls away. Uh, like, I, I, we love those characters. We love the worlds and the loose ends that are introduced in the books. And part of the pleasure was having the opportunity to tell stories in the margins of the books yeah. and um, fill in pieces of backstory and imagine futures for a character like Alan Pangborn. You know, and then at the same time, it was sort of inspired by this sense that Stephen King is a writer who returns to the scene of the crime. He obviously is obsessed with certain themes and ideas and kinds of characters and and some of those they just sort of present themselves readily you know mm -hmm. like it, it would have been a little crazy for us to construct a first season of this show that didn't involve in some respect an adult who is reckoning with the traumas of childhood that yeah. have helped to sort of like define the trajectory of his life alice monroe the short story writer and stephen king are like two very different writers but it's like childhood and adulthood uh, are the sort of two poles of everything that he, that either one of them has ever written just about you know yeah. um and so that that felt like something that was that was kind of obvious to us um but there are there are lots of other kinds of story structures and habits and ideas and tropes that are fundamentally kingian and being able to explore them and recombine them and remix them in a way and do it with a great sense of reverence, but do it to tell a new original story in the key of Stephen King um, mm -hmm. for a TV audience. That, that's sort of central to what the project of the show was always going to be um, in the sense that, like, wouldn't it be great to, to tell a fundamentally Kingian story, but a story that even diehard, completist Stephen King fan can be surprised by, you know, where there's new turns and twists that are kind of lurking around every corner. And so um, I can't imagine that that won't continue to be a, a sort of essential part of the DNA of the show moving forward. Cool. Well, that's amazing. We have one final uh, speed round of King-related questions that, if you're willing, we'll knock out with you. So, like, first one would just be, like, your favorite book. Favorite book, I gotta say, is Different Seasons because I'm very indecisive and kind of a surf and turf guy. So if I, if I get a pick that gives me, um, gives me four novellas, like I, I'm, I'm all over it. Um, but obviously, you know, I, I, Dusty and I have a great reverence for uh, Shawshank. It's a favorite. And The Body, too, which in some ways feels like, you know, although it's not a horror story in the sort of traditional sense of the word, 
kind of lays out a whole bunch of the themes and ideas that are centrally important to so many of the books. Oh yeah. And, and honestly, I still do see it almost like kind of like a scary story in a way, because it feels like something that would have scared me as a kid, you know, like the idea of urban legends and hearing about the urban legends actually come true. And I, I just think it really does tap into that sort of like almost like neighborhood horror story. Um, well, a hundred percent. I mean, that's the primal event, you know, I yeah. mean, that's a story about what it is to like, come to terms with your own mortality and the, you know, the idea that there's horror in the world. Um, and then beyond that, it's one of the great Kingian stories of childhood friendship, which is, you know, obviously, um, such an important theme. Well, what would be your favorite character? Favorite character, probably just for the audacity of it. And because I'm a writer and therefore find her completely petrifying, it's gotta be Annie Wilkes. That's so funny. I want to say Dustin said the same thing. I think that's, Damn it! You got there first. <laughs> this is the problem. No, you two are the very similar. This is that's great. It's a it's a great partnership. You know what? We just, this is in our own little story of um, time travel and paradox. I'm going to say that he stole the answer from me. <laughs> great, great. Well, I guess. Well, I wonder if how this is going to be for your favorite villain then. Uh, well, was that Dusty's answer? Maybe I should get. I mean, I, I think it's hard not to choose. Randall Flag. It just seems like you have you're like you're required by law to you know. Um, yeah, yeah. I also just think I, I would say that there's something interesting. I mean, you mentioned Needful Things. I'm a big fan of Needful Things too. It's such a strange book, you know, tonally. It's such a it's sort of a different kind of Stephen King novel. But part of what I love about that book, and I guess about Leland Gaunt as a character, is that sort of the classic stranger comes to town story. But mm-hmm. in a way, it, it's sort of like. Leland Gaunt doesn't destroy Castle Rock. He sort of um, provokes the autoimmune response on the part of the town that mm-hmm. um, causes the town to destroy itself. There's something, I would say, very morally timely about that idea in America in, in 2018. So, you know, he deserves a special nod as well. 100% agree. Scariest moment? <sighs> Scariest moment. I guess for me, scariest moment. That's sort of a tricky one, you know, because like, I guess I would say, you know, like I've reread a bunch of stories recently over a a vacation. And like a lot of the moments that I find scariest are the ones that sort of represent something that is kind of like not quite comprehensible that I can't quite like get my arms around, you know, so it's like it's not murder and mayhem. Like I I, I reread such a weird story. I reread um. Beach World, it's Beach World, right? It's yeah, a, it's it's a, a space skeleton opera, and the, yeah, and the sort of like anthropomorphic band on <laughs> yeah. the on the planet. Like, mm-hmm. so, like I remember reading that story as a kid and being so completely harrowed by it because I couldn't quite make sense of it. Do you yeah. know what I mean? Like, yeah. and I think often it's like it's the detail or it's the idea or it's the choice that like kind of breaks your brain when you try to think about it. That um, in the end, it sort of like haunts and disturbs me. No, you're absolutely right, too. I mean, I I think you mentioned Lovecraft earlier, and one of the scariest stories I've ever read is still The Color Out of Space. And it's this idea of that... Of course, man. You just know, yeah. no, it's just there. It just happens. It just keeps soaking up this, this, this area, and you don't even know how it stops. You don't even know why it's doing this, and it's just so terrifying. It's just the, the unknown of just of, and not being able to comprehend the reasoning and how it's happening is so terrifying to me. Well, completely. And there's something about watching characters with whom you empathize, trying to reckon with an experience 
that they can't explain and that they'll probably never be able to explain yeah. that I find really provocative and disturbing. You know, I mean, in, in H.P. Lovecraft, it sort of gets like metabolized in the form of like incredibly lugubrious thesaurus mm-hmm. prose. You know what <laughs> yeah. I mean? You, you sort of catch a glimpse of something that breaks your sense of reality. And the result is that you become like a really, really boring conversationalist. Yeah. I say that with great affection for H.P. Lovecraft. But yeah, I love that in King too. What about the grossest moment for you? Something that really kind of just got under your skin. <laughs> Actually, I'll tell you what the grossest is. This is, really, this is, this is um, an answer that harkens back to um, the child I was when I encountered this stuff, but it probably the grossest moment for me is actually in an adaptation. It was like, I have such a sort of hair trigger kind of queasy barf response to the cockroach story in the original yeah. creep show, yep. you know, the, and there, and, you know, for that reason, like uh, any insect and arachnid stuff, I'm not a great fan of it. You know what I mean? Yeah. So like the spider fixation, um, that was pretty harrowing for me. But, you know, yeah, being sort of consumed from within by cockroaches, you know, that one and the whatever I was 12 years old at some birthday party where I had to get, uh, like, call my parents and get taken home in the middle of the night. Like, <laughs> that, that's one that is, that is hung with me. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, then that's a, it's like the inescapable dread in that, too. It, it's just the way that we just watched it recently at our film festival. And the thing that was so unnerving to me about that that whole sequence is just it feels almost like this weird, like, postmodernism dystopian society like this dystopian new york that you have where like everyone just seems to be operating in this like sort of malicious manner and like granted this guy's a rotten <laughs> human being but even the people around him seem j- just equally like soulless that whole sequence i'm always just like all right get me the hell out of here <laughs> like i just don't want to be here anymore oh yeah no no completely i mean it's a really it's, it's, it's a pretty dark vision of human nature that <laughs> yeah. kind of pervades the entirety of that movie. Oh, absolutely. I mean, down to like the kids and the the parents. But speaking of movies, last one, favorite adaptation of any of his works? I don't know how to answer that question. It's hard. That's a hard question. I mean, I, like most American adults of a certain age, like have a immediate hair trigger response. If you play me like seven seconds of Thomas Newman's score from Shawshank, you know, I will like, Begin, I, I, like I, I, I begin blubbering very, very quickly. That movie, it's a perfect movie. Like I remember what it was and where I was when I saw it for the first time. And I just, you know, rewatched it a couple months ago. But I think that the probably the favorite for me is still The Dead Zone. And, yeah. and part of that is Christopher Walken's performance. You know, look, I, I think The Shining is probably a better movie. It, for me, I know it's not yeah. for Stephen King. And, I, I, and by the way, I completely understand why. Oh, yeah, totally. Um, but, you know, The Dead Zone just, um, it meant a huge amount to me when I was a kid. And, um, you know, it's a movie that I still will annoy the bejesus out of anybody who has the misfortune of watching it with me, like reciting Herbert Lom's dialogue along with him. It's a movie I know really well that feels like it's kind of in my veins in some way. And, and I'm sure, by the way, that, you know, even besides questions about visually how we represent Ruth traveling between different yeah. moments in her own life in the past and the present, I think in some other ways, it probably informed a lot of the writing of uh, this season and of episode seven. Yeah, that's interesting that you mentioned because the, the recurring element of you t- t- talking about that film and then also Shawshank, in my review for just the pre-air thing for Castle Rock in general, I had 
mention that the town does feel very similar of like it's it's like a meld between like the Darabont's vision of Castle Rock for, mm-hmm. with like also the kind of cold confines of Castle Rock that are in um uh Cronenberg's movie and and I, was that intentional or did it just kind of happen or was that like when you went into the show is that like all right this is kind of like the core Castle Rock that we want to have it wasn't deliberate in the sense that you know we didn't have like mood boards where we pulled shots from those movies <laughs> yeah. and we talked a lot about those <laughs> movies with um Mike Uppendahl especially who was our producing director who directed um first couple episodes and then episode four you know we had really specific ideas about what the town should look like and mm-hmm. feel like and you know how how big it needed to be for our purposes and to a certain extent there's probably some license that we've taken there, there are some ways in which castle rock in our show has a little bit of dairy in it too it's oh, probably totally. like a little yeah. more um kind of post-industrial than the actual castle rock was but mm-hmm. it felt like an opportunity to tell a story about an American small town where the bottom had fallen out and industry had fled and what the costs of that were. Yeah. But we really loved the idea that Castle Rock in our show could feel like a place that sort of exists outside of time, that it's contemporary, but on the other hand, it's sort of frozen. You know, mm-hmm. this would say that like people who've suffered a trauma often kind of get um, frozen in time at the moment that the trauma befalls them. And yeah. uh, it's sort of, that's sort of what Castle Rock felt like to us, you know, that like, you pass a house that still has like a Gary Hart for president lawn sign outside, you know, <laughs> or a house that has, you know, Christmas lights that have been strung up on the roof, you know, for 11 years since the event, you know, that sort of like every one of these houses could feel like a window onto somebody's worst day or some uncanny story, you know, like kind of like a little advent calendar of nightmares. And so like that suggested some things in terms of how we would present the town visually. So that was sort of um, in a way that was, the genesis and then a whole lot of scouting that we did, you know, driving around small towns in Maine and in Massachusetts. And obviously the studio always wants you to fly to Canada and drive around and pick a small town in Canada because there are great tax incentives and you do well on the currency exchange and all that (laughs) stuff. But it kind of felt like uh, there's a very particular kind of New England town that has um, gotten the wrong end of the stick. And that was sort of the model for what we thought Castle Rock should look and feel like. We absolutely executed it. And you nailed it. You got it down. I love this series so much. I cannot wait to see what you do in the future with this. This is one of the most anticipated things tied to the Stephen King universe for me personally. And I know for a lot of our co-hosts, especially, and it's just so exciting to see where this is going. And especially given the whole renaissance right now with King, I just, I can't see anything more exciting than this because there's such an unknown to it. You know, there's so many places to go. And so for me, it's, that's, it's just the most exciting thing because it does really feel like I'm reading like a new Stephen King novel. And I, lo- I love the idea that it's going to be an anthology and that it's just going to feel like another you know, different novel each season. So congratulations. This is a superb show. I was absolutely stunned by this episode and something that will stick with me forever. You know, I know that sounds like I'm gushing and going crazy and everything, but it's just, it's just very exciting. And this has just been... Definitely the highlight of my summer for sure. So uh, thank you. Oh man, thank you so much. That really, really, it means a ton. And I know it means a ton to Dusty too and Mike Uppendahl and our directors and the cast and everybody. So thank you. It, well, I really, really appreciate it. No, of course. No, and, you know, keep up the great work. And uh, thank you so much for taking the time to talk to us. I know how busy you must be. And we definitely took up a ton of your time. So <laughs> No problem. Yeah. Thank Same. you. And um, rock on. And please um, wield your editorial powers for good to make me sound a little um, less halting and more <laughs> comprehensible than I am in three-dimensional space. Thank we'll you. We'll do. We'll do. Well, have a good one. All right. Good Take it everything. easy. Thanks, guys. Bye. Bye-bye. Thanks.
All right. That's that, some fascinating stuff. I thought that was pretty fascinating. No, lots of good insight and uh, just fun guys. I'm so excited to see where the series is going to go. Same. And I, mean, uh, I love that it got renewed. I think yep. the, the two masterminds that we just talked to have a really good grip on where they're going to take this thing. Agreed. And then they know their king. They do know their king. And we appreciate that here at I the Losers Club. really appreciate that. Stay tuned next week. We'll be back with episode eight. A lot more thoughts on that. And uh, we hope you enjoyed, if you haven't already, listened to our episode uh, on episode seven, because I think we offered up some pretty great analysis, even though I wasn't on it. Hey, and I had a really cool theory at the end there, too. You did. I did. I had a source. So... I think that's it. That's it. I, I'm, I'm exhausted. This has been a very long week. It's been a very long week. Uh, and because we work so hard and tirelessly for you, please leave us a review on iTunes. Follow us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. And long days and pleasant nights. Long days and pleasant, pleasant nights. nights. Bye, everyone. Bye. I got some hot friends. God, I got some hot friends. I got some hot friends. God, I got some hot Consequence Podcast Network.